You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for downloading this bonus episode of the Attacking Scrum podcast with Wales versus New Zealand just around the corner. Uh, we took a look at what makes this fixture so special and to do that I was joined by James Stafford, author, journalist, you may know him uh, from the East Terrace uh, on the, uh, online or on Twitter and uh, yeah, we caught up as he's got a brand new book coming out called How Wales Beat the Mighty All Blacks which looks at the uh, the 1905 fixture which was one that I did not know a huge amount about but yeah absolutely fascinating history uh, around that game and uh, as I say brand new book coming out which is uh, a kids book um, with some fantastic illustrations uh, as well as a, as a brilliant story around that so if you've got a, if you've got young ones around definitely one to check out um, but aside from chatting about the book we also talked about what makes uh, that Wales versus New Zealand game just uh, just so exciting and look at some of the near misses over the years as well so that's the first part of, uh, of the podcast and then we've also got a bonus chat with uh, Paul Baines who has been on the show a number of times before you may know him from uh, from the driving mall uh, does a lot of uh, a lot of content on a lot of various different podcasts and on YouTube as well uh, so uh, yeah it was good to chat to Paul he based out in New Zealand so a bit of a resident expert when it comes to when it comes to all things All Blacks so uh, yeah we had a chat about what to expect from uh, from the All Blacks at the weekend and also just kind of what the feeling is in New Zealand with regards to whether Wayne Pivak's side have a chance at the weekend so all of that to come uh, a big thanks to Paul and a big thanks to James for joining us and uh, as always a big thanks to our sponsors at So Coffee Trades if you want to get some great quality coffee then you can do that at socoffeetrades.co.uk right on with the show Welcome to a very special edition of the Attack in Scrum podcast. The Autumn Internationals are just around the corner. Wales are set to get underway against the mighty New Zealand. So we thought what a fantastic time to catch up with the author of a fantastic new children's book, How Wales Beat the Mighty All Blacks. Uh, it's James Stafford. How are you doing, James? I'm great. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to have you on uh, on the show. And um, we're going to talk about the book in, in more detail uh, as we go throughout the podcast. Um, well, I wanted to start because uh, you know there is always this this air of anticipation when Wales take on New Zealand, and yeah. what what is it do you think that just makes that rivalry so special? I think it's a combination of things. I mean, to, uh, overly simplifying and generalising here, but it's the two countries in the traditional rugby nations that it's a working class or, or a game of a nation, if you like. Mm. Um, and then it just happened to be that when New Zealand first came over to Europe, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but the best team in Europe at that time was Wales. So when the teams first met as well, you had two nations with both passionate and crazy about rugby at all levels. The classes mixed. The game was still very class-based, but there was a mixture. 
And then they both met in the first game and it was seen as an unofficial championship of the world. And Wales were the only team to beat them on that tour. And it just started off a rivalry. And the old, the other thing then, in those days, New Zealand would only tour every 15, 20, 10 years. So it just became a really special thing. And I think that first game just kind of bonded us and it's it stayed alive even though that let's be honest for the last 70 years we've not uh, <laughs> cracked up a win or anything but it, it still kind of lingers I think. Do you know I was going to touch on that because you look back at the you look back at the record and I to be honest I hadn't even realized this but in the first yeah. four meetings Wales won the yeah. first three and yeah and um, they were all in Cardiff the only one we lost was uh, we played down in Swansea as well yeah. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? And you just think, God. And then from that point onwards, the uh, the weight has continued. Well, if again, if we go on the history of why we mean something to them, if you imagine in 1953, uh, we were three one in the series, and every other team, they were they were above in the series. You know, they had South Africa was. A, I'm not sure the figures, but they played South Africa fairly regularly. But of all the other countries, we were the only one to have the upper hand on them. Even admit it was, you know four games over 50 years but that kind of sets something up I think the score now is something like 32-3 or something so I think we're obviously falling off the pace a bit now but yeah that must have meant something and you knew back then you weren't going to get a crack for maybe 10 years if you lost so um yeah it's a great rivalry or was. It, yeah well I mean even then though you know you, you look at bring it into the current day and Wales haven't played New Zealand obviously we I mean the, the third place playoff in the yeah. And the World Cup doesn't really count, does it? But no. you know, we haven't played them in a, in Cardiff since 2017, and yeah. I kind of feel like that scarcity just does add that add a level of intensity. Completely, and it's one of the problems with modern international rugby. I'm aware of the financial reasons as to why we play so much, but there's something wrong when you play Australia more in Cardiff than you do even England. You know, mm. you're playing teams from half across the world. And I know as a kid, uh, so I was 10 when New Zealand first came to Wales in my lifetime, or was, that I was old enough to remember in 1989. And before that, after that, we didn't play them again until the 95 World Cup. Uh, and then we didn't play them again until 97, which was in London. So there was like this huge period where they weren't in, in Cardiff either. And it just, kept that specialness about it even though um you know it was a bit more regular and also i think until relatively recently you know when new zealand began rotating squads if you look historically the last sort of 10-15 years when they were doing these grand slam tours in europe they'd start rotating the squad they'd often still put out the pretty kind of strongest team against us even if we weren't the strongest of the four or the joint strong you know so it, they seem to be a fixture they really respect and we often get the more aggressive version of the hacker i've noticed as well a friend aussie friends of mine always say how come they they always seem to be a bit more uh, spiked up for the hacker for you guys and other countries and i think that's true even if we haven't competed with them much really in the last 20 years or more they still it still means a lot historically when they come to cardiff for the new zealanders as well yeah, it does. Absolutely. And I remember noticing it for the first time, you know, the, the first time I went to see Wales, New Zealand. And I just noticed that chatting to people in the bar, like there's there's a brilliant, it's a slight stereotype, but there's a wonderful um, just manner about talking to New Zealanders about rugby. And they're so much, you know, they get a thump chief by 40 points. And they're kind of saying, oh, I really thought you boys going to have us today. You know, you look pretty good for the first three or four minutes. Yeah. And it's like, you know, but there is definitely that just that shared love of uh, that shared love of the game amongst the fans that I think, it, you know, some, obviously it's different yeah. when you play England. But even sometimes when you're, you're playing other other nations, there's not quite that that kind of kindred uh, kindred spirits that you get with New Zealand. Well, I think when I was a kid and you know, I was playing in the back garden, you know, dreaming of playing for Wales. If I'm honest, I was dreaming about beating New Zealand, not England. Because to me, growing up in the 80s, even in the 80s, we were still beating England most years, yeah? And it was still, we were heading the overall series. Where New Zealand, we hadn't beaten at that point for 30 years. And to me, that was always like the, the dream game was the one. And it's the one I want to see in my lifetime. And it's quite feasible. I'm, I'm 42 now and I haven't seen it. And it is very feasible. I might not. So for me, it's, it's still the big one. And I know even, I can't remember the player's name, I'm afraid, but... I think one of the players in the 89 New Zealand team, he didn't get to play at the Arms Park. They played Cardiff there and they played um, Wales there. And he didn't get on the field in the Arms Park matches. And he he was really upset because, especially back then, you know, the Arms Park was still like the, whole, the sacred ground for a lot of New Zealanders as well. And it was a really big thing. For, you know, there were world champions in 89 and these guys had done it all, but it still meant a heck of a lot to them to to run out on the field at Cardiff. And do you know what? I think it, I think it still does. As much as I'm 
absolutely with you with the the amount of test match rugby that's played and obviously we all know the the commercial reasons behind that but there is definitely something about players playing at Cardiff and the number of players who've said that about you know almost they they up their game um playing playing away to Wales because it yeah. does you know I'm when you get when you get the millennium on that atmosphere where it's really crackling then it is it is something completely special and and you know there's there are very few places that that um that can match it in terms of watching it, a test match it's quite interesting because i've lived abroad i lived in dublin for a few years and people want to call london abroad and now i live in prague i i've talked to a lot of rugby people international people and not you know and aussies as well and, and south africans who live in those cities and they always as the fans and players enjoy the experience of Cardiff and the, the way the stadium is. And yeah, there's still that something about it. Um, I wish we could find a way, as I say, just to keep it that little bit, you know, fewer meetings between the big teams. I think it does make it more special. Um, I mean, I, I know that's an entire other debate, but yeah, I know talking to fans and actually in the Czech Republic, it's quite interesting. Um, a lot of the rugby community over there are Welsh supporters. Uh, they seem to identify with Wales um, as a smaller nation, uh, they, a lot of them, as Czech Republic's a small nation, they quite kind of tap into that. And then if they get into rugby, they maybe get into have a look at the history. And we have Wales has quite a lot of support. And I've met a surprising number of Czech people who have been to Cardiff for a game and, and, and really love it as well. So there's even something special, you know, in the Czech rugby community about about Wales and rugby, which is nice. That's good to hear. Let's uh, while we're talking about special things, I wanted to. I wanted to have a look at, um, obviously, aside from being the first game, what was it that made you want to hone in on, on the 1905 fixture? What was it about that that, that you think just makes a, you know, such an interesting story? Yeah, well, I, I was one of those kids who was an, same as an adult. When I get into something, I immediately want to know everything about it, the history <laughs> of it, etc. And when I got into rugby in about 87, 88, I uh, started watching Wales. My mum went and bought me a history book about the uh, by Jonathan uh, John Griffiths another Welshman and it was about the history of the game and I just started devouring it and I couldn't believe that rugby was played at Cardiff Arms Park you know at that point over 100 years ago 120 years ago it blew my mind and I was going through it all and I loved the Victorian Edwardian era for Wales and we were re we had this golden era it's arguably still the best Welsh team ever and uh, it coincided with the first ever tour of New Zealand and this tour you know they were away for like you know most of a year they took you know months to even get here they played 32 games redefined the game came up with new positions they were fitter they were faster they were stronger and you read these history books and the excitement that was generated in the uk because uh, there's no tv there's no radio it's all like newspaper reports and it's like this unstoppable machine come in and it was such a fantastic story and then when i found out that the only game they lost was to wales it was seen as like the championship of the world because wales had dominated in europe at that time and it just and it was a which we'll get on to a disallowed try, which is still talked about now. And there was something very romantic that, you know, to have lost one game in a way is more romantic than having won them all. And it was just this perfect um, storm of circumstance. And then also it's arguably uh, the game that defined rugby as a national sport of both Wales and New Zealand. Um, and then the other little things which we can talk about later as well, it was the first time the national anthem was sung at a Welsh game. And if possible, people even think at any sporting occasion. And it kind of led to the this tradition of national anthems at sporting occasions. So this game just had everything, everything you can think of. Um, and it, it just always, always fascinated me. And I think the fact that it was pre-camera, um, pre-radio even, just gives it that bit of romance because you have to picture it all in your head in a way that you can't if you had an old video footage of it because it just wouldn't look as good or so it just always attracted me and it's something I was really keen to sort of tell in the story one day I think those myths are, are very important and obviously we simply don't get them now you know you look at you look yeah. back at last year and lockdown and all the games that were replayed and you look back yeah. at some old rugby and it's just very very different but that to me is is not what it's about you know it's kind of yeah. like that it's the myth and the drama and everything that goes with it you know you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily expect to be as blown away going to going to watch a film or a play the second time round, would you? It's like, yeah, um, or, or a film from 1950 versus now. It's like it's there is there is something about the the myth and the mystique and the the romance that surrounds it. I, unfortunately, I wish I could quote this exactly, but there's a great boxing writer called AJ Lieblin. If, I don't know if you ever read him, but he's amazing. But he wrote he wrote in the uh, boxing in the 50s for the New Yorker, and he was writing just as TV was coming into boxing and they were starting to have video footage or good camera footage of games and he wrote a lovely piece about how there's the fight takes place as he saw it then it was how it was in his mind 
Then there was how other people talked about it and wrote about it. But then when he saw the video, there was never any of the things that he'd imagined. And if anything, it would knock it down. And I think there's something, you know, I've read um, stuff about famously, you know, tough tackles and tackles that apparently shook the ground. And then you find an old YouTube clip of it that someone's dug out and it's okay, but it's not what you've read about. So there's something about these games that because they're pre-video or pre-film, these myths can survive. And what we've done in this story, because it's aimed at young children, is we've given it that romantic and, and, and dramatic, you know, dramatic sense, um, which is great for storytelling purposes. And it's all based on true things, but we've given it that extra little bit of romance as well, which I think really helps it as a story. And it extends to even like the the travel and the preparation because we're not talking about. I mean, even even now, you know, we've this this series will have its own logistical challenges, but yeah. um, but it's nothing compared to what you'd be dealing with in 1905. No, and I think there's also something about you know it's exciting now when New Zealand or a team like any sporting team or athlete comes to your town, it's exciting or your country, it's exciting. But you know, in 1905, let, let's be honest, it, there wasn't a lot to do outside of work. You know, there wasn't the leisure choice to do you didn't have tvs at home you know for most people the weekend that's they often work six days a week that saturday afternoon was everything to them and then this team comes from the other side of the world takes months to get here you're reading about it because it's taught they were it was months before they got to wales you know you're reading about it tensions building up there's no way of seeing them until you unless you get a ticket to the ground you know and there's only fifty five thousand of you then and you you just can't imagine if you think how excited we get now about a world cup game or a big Six Nations Grand Slam game. You can't even imagine how exciting it must have been then to have a ticket to this kind of game. And as I said, this game was seen as the unofficial championship of the world. And uh, the, you know, again, it's probably hyperbole, but there's apparently the you know the pressmen were too nervous to type on their typewriters <laughs> and all this stuff. But you just can't imagine the excitement that would have had. And then when they the game was over, nobody knew when they were coming back. It, it turned out they didn't come back for another fourteen years. You know, so it really could be the only time in your lifetime you had a chance to see the All Blacks or, or, or Wales New Zealand game so it's a fascinating romantic world um, I'm not saying it's better but you, you know you can imagine the excitement people must have had going to it yeah and I think like just to, to bring it back to the, the parallels with the modern world is like you say when, when there's so much test match rugby played it's not I, I kind of feel like the test as a concept has has changed a lot you know not even just since those mm. days since you know since the, the 90s and, and you know in the yeah. noughties because of the um, the sheer amount that's played and I think the thing for me is it's and you've tapped into it there is it's about playing meaningful rugby and yeah. you know if you're playing um, if you're playing New Zealand once every 14 years and it's yeah. you know it's the unofficial world championship of the uh, of the yeah. time that that has so much riding on it and the yeah. the intensity and the, the the sense of occasion is just massive which obviously you don't get if you're fielding a you know, a, a second string side, Australian side for the third time in, in yeah, the space of three I, months. I have a rugby chat group on WhatsApp with a, a three Aussie guys and we're you know, talking rugby every day. And we're always joking because, uh, you know, there was that period in 2011-12 uh, where we played Australia six times in a calendar year, you know, at, on top of fixtures every other year or, or and test series. And it's got, it's got to the point now, you know, we always just joking like, you know, Wales play Australia and we barely talk about it or if someone wins it's just like okay you can probably win in six months or you know it's kind of you haven't got the bragging rights or it's a bit of a joke so and again I know there's commercial reasons for that but um yeah there's something about you know like you said when you have squad systems and I understand now to protect players health you do have to rotate squads but like you say you know the November test when they one team's rested seven players, you've rested six, or you've got players outside the international window who can't attend, and it does take. Uh, it kind of makes the World Cup the big one, and that's a, as well. Without getting sidetracked, why I think it's so important to keep the World Cup every four years, not having a two-year World Cup or not have some equivalent league system of a World Cup, because the World Cup now is the pinnacle apart from in a group stage when teams might still rest their best team against New Zealand, unfortunately, as we've seen many times. Um, but yeah, the world cup knockouts, it's why it's the best rugby every four years, because that's the nearest you'll ever get to an all or nothing test match, isn't it? Yeah. And I think you, you know, you look at the, the whole sporting landscape at the moment, you mentioned the commercial reasons and it just feels like out there right now, every sport is trying to, is trying to sort out its commercial future. Obviously, COVID will have played a big part in that. But you even look at things like, you know, like football is genuinely probably going to go down the World Cup every two years route. 
and yeah. and it's just it just will never be the same you know and no. I, and that's not that's not just oh well i like it the way it is for the tradition it is that scarcity that that means that when it comes down to a penalty mm. kick to to win or lose it that's that is everything on yeah. the line for four years and you immediately half that intensity straight away yeah and i'm a big i'm a massive nfl fan and i'm not i'm not i'm not i know a lot of people aren't big FNL fans, but one of the things they've added an extra game this year. Now there's an extra regular season game, which I think is a shame, but it's still 17. But one of the great things the NFL has going for it. And I know it's a different setup and there's no international competition, but I'm a, I don't have much spare time to watch sport. I watch, I have, I have to choose what I watch. I've got two kids and I write books and that, but I know that from September till say January, I'll dedicate myself to the Packers and I just got 17 and every game will matter because the season's so short. And every game, maybe maybe not the last game, depending on things, but for at least 15 or 16 of those weeks, both sides will have their full strength team out, whatever they're doing. And then you have the playoffs and then boom, it's over. And there's something brilliant about the how compact that is. And it adds to it, and this is the problem, and I know you guys have talked about it, but with the Pro 14 or URC and it's broken up and there's no regular thing and teams are being rested and you never get... When I lived in Dublin... Um, I, I did a little bit of reporting on the on what was then the Celtic League, but as a fan, I I kind of stopped going to. I used mm. to, I started going to see Cardiff or the Scarlets or Ospreys or whatever when they came to Dublin, but in the end, I just stopped going because it was Cardiff's B team, the Ospreys B team, playing against the Leinster first team and getting smashed, and it was just uh, didn't matter. You know what I mean? And that's the problem with that league. And I'm a I, I grew up a Cardiff season ticket holder. I, I still follow them. I still and I still follow Welsh rugby. But if I've got two hours on the weekend and there's a game on, I'm probably going to choose a Premiership game, or you know, because see, you know, to see the Har- Harlequins Bristol game or something is more attractive to me if I've only got two hours. Because on the whole, in the last five years, the Premiership has been a fun, you know had some fantastic product, fantastic game, and every time I've spent a couple of hours watching, you know, Cardiff Benetton on a Friday night in an international, you know what I mean? It's a problem. And I know it's complicated, but when you're choosing to watch another league over the team you support or where you're from, it's it's really sad, Uh, but I've got to make that choice. I don't have much spare time to watch sports. So I want to see the best sport I can in a competition that matters, you know? It just, honestly, it just comes down to, yeah, that point we keep coming back to of meaningful rugby. And there's just so much, so much that that has very little riding on it in the in the pro 14 and and you mentioned it there you know cardiff b team getting thumped by the leinster first team i mean realistically any of the welsh regions could pick a you know could could pick their first team and the leinster b team would thump them now such is how strong that they are and it's just you know it's those mismatches that that are just no good for the for the overall product whereas you say you know the, the premiership has much um has lots of great rivalries and lots of entertaining rugby at the which is just a, it's just a better offering, you know. Yeah, and and I'm quite lucky. And the Premiership, out of interest, is they get shown on Czech TV now. Uh, they have a game on at least one game a week, and they have highlight packages as well. So um, they're doing quite well on. I know it's a small market, but it's quite good to see how they've got into the Czech uh, TV market. Um, yeah, they have. Interestingly, they've kind of exited the free-to-air market in the uh, in England. So they're no longer yeah. showing highlights on Channel Five and uh, no longer showing games on them. But that's another uh, another one for another day. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back after that, we're going to chat more about uh, about the new book, and we're also going to have um, a chat through well some of the some of the real highlights of. Um, of uh, your previous book as well, The Illustrated History of Welsh Rugby, because there's some absolute cracking stories in there as well. So all that's come after this very quick break. Welcome to the second half of the Attacking Scrum podcast, here with James Stafford, and we've been talking about uh, his new book, How Wales Beat the Mighty All Blacks. We've touched on a number of things there as well, rather than rather than just a, just the book. We've we've kind of covered everything from uh, from how how New Zealand would have travelled to Wales in 1905 to the the future of uh, to the future of the game. But just to bring it back to uh, to bring it back to the book now, um, you've shown me a preview, and one of the highlights that, that stood out for me um, is the is the illustration of the of the team sheet, which is just absolutely mm-hmm. fantastic. Talk us through some of those uh, some of those star names back in 1905. Yeah, so um, 
the book's illustrated by Karis Fian and she's really captured this kind of Edwardian feel of, of children's books. And she's in the centre page of the book. We have a, a, the team sheet of, of Wales, New Zealand. Um, and the captain and the, sort of the core hero of the book is Gwyn Nichols, who's actually an Englishman by birth. Um, but he was the kind of the prince of centres, his nickname. And for anyone who ever wondered who the Gwyn Nichols Gates in Cardiff Arms Park are about, uh, it's him. Uh, an absolutely fantastic player and a fantastic leader. And he was um, retired just before he'd taken Wales to a couple of Triple Crowns. And France were in the championship then, so Triple Crowns was the pinnacle of European rugby. Uh, he was an amazing player, a real thinker of the game. And he'd retired uh, just to, for business reasons, because people were obviously working there. It was an amateur game. He couldn't devote the time. And as New Zealand started sweeping... Britain and Ireland and knocking all these teams down. Uh, he got itchy feet and people, all the press were playing on his uh, desire to win and saying, come out of retirement. And he kept refusing. And eventually the challenge got too too much for him. And he came out of retirement um, to lead Wales straight in as captain. And we've told the story from his from his point of view. But yeah, he was a fantastic centre and three-quarter. But the team was packed full of stars. Um, you had players like Percy Bush, Reese Gabe, and the, the forwards were immensely tough. We had a really hard pack, uh, like they used to call them, like Ronda forwards, like really tough, could be steel workers, coal miners, policemen, really tough stuff, stuff people who gave our very, by the day, very small backs. It sounds very stereotypical, but we were known for being a hard team, but a thinking, creative team. And we were a lot smaller than most teams, certainly smaller than New Zealand. So we had to outthink them as well or outjink them, as, as people used to say. And one of the great stories that and we put it in this book is Wales, unusually for the time, had a training session before this game, uh, which wasn't the done thing. It wasn't even strictly allowed. And they rehearsed a move um, uh, that involved a bit of deception from the base of the scrum and a switch of direction. And they rehearsed the move and then they called it on the Saturday and it's actually the move that led to Teddy Morgan's winning try. So it's a great example of a team that were tough, hard as nails, but also could think and have the skills to execute. So it was really uh, just a, a fantastic team and a who's who of, of, of that era of Welsh stars. And, uh, you know, even if you don't get this book, it's definitely a, a game you should go and look up and, and read up on because there's so many subplots and sub stories and controversy around it. It's, it's amazing. I love that because, um, again, it's, it's tempting to look at it as a stereotype or, again, a myth about, you know, hardworking, tough as tough as old boots forward, steel workers, coal miners and, yeah. and you know, these uh, fleet of foot backs. But, I mean, it, presumably there is there is always a degree of a degree of element in these kind of myths. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's something that we that we saw kind of identify the, the, the sorry, define the traditional identity of, of Welsh rugby for, for years that followed. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, most stereotypes are rooted in something, you know, a truth. And, uh, you know, again, if and it's, I cover it a bit more in my other book, but there was, you know, rugby was a very much a middle class game in Scotland, Ireland and England. And again, it's something I mentioned in the other book, but we were looked down upon. And the Scottish and Irish were far crueler to us and, and more unhelpful than the English. You know, there's a traditional rivalry. Everybody wants to be England. But in rugby terms, the RFU were really good friends of ours and supported us when the other countries tried to ban us for professionalism or players getting paid or the RFU was the one that would support us. And the, the Scottish Union in particular was no friend of the Welsh. And there's even examples of, you know, Scottish officials standing up in the post-match dinner after a Wales-Scotland game and, and saying, like, you shouldn't be pick, picking these working class men, you know, that why why you they should be playing rug, rugby league. Or, so they was quite openly hostile to the working man. And it was seen by some people is an unfair advantage over the gentleman, you know, that these steel workers had this strength from working all day and it wasn't fair to unleash these, I suppose, brutes upon, uh, you know, these gentlemen. So it's a real, uh, there was a real snobbery about it. And I think as well, that's probably going back to earlier, why there was a, a bond perhaps back in those days between like Wales and New Zealand, because uh, in both countries, the game was played across the classes and for different reasons. You can, mm. argue, you can argue about why that was, but there was a, um, Certainly, we were kindred spirits in that way back then. So, you know, it makes perfect sense that there was that kind of bond between the two nations. Do you think that, you know, obviously the, the game's been professional for, for 25 odd years now and naturally things like that, things like that will change. Do you still think there's yeah. a, that it's important, that kind of sense of identi national identity in a way that a, a game is played? Because obviously we went through yeah. the, you know, the, the much more physical pragmatic approach under Warren Gatlin but it brought success and you kind of wonder you know whether these things will, will die out or change or evolve 
I, I'm fascinated by how how countries play sport and, and the way, not just rugby, but the way national characteristics are, are often reflected in, in, in the way a sport is played or the weather influences it, of course, and, and, and stuff. So I've played amateur level, but I played rugby in Wales, Ireland, England and Czech Republic. And I grew up playing in Wales, grew up playing for a club called Barry Plastics. Uh, let's just say a bit of a tough club. And we may have had the odd ban as a club, not just as, as players, but uh, I grew up playing, you know, anyone who's played Welsh Parks rugby or clubs rugby knows it could be incredibly violent, incredibly tough. And when I first moved to Dublin to play rugby, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but the club I moved to was um, an old schoolboy club called Belvedere. And it was it's a posh club, if you want to say it. And, you know, I didn't realize the very different history to that club. But I was expecting when I played my first few games, I was waiting. I couldn't believe no one had stood on me. No one had kicked me in the back of the head. No, you know, no it was a totally different game. Uh, there was a much more technical aspect to it. And not that they weren't tough people, but it was a very different game. Same when I played in London. I played for London Japanese, bizarrely, but the games were uh, far less, let's say, confrontational. Um, and the same in the Czech Republic. Uh, I played played with a French guy and, uh, you know, a couple of times something would look like it was going to kick off and me and the French guy are in there waiting for this massive 30-man brawl. And we look around and all our Czech teammates are wondering what we're doing because, you know, it's a totally different attitude to the game. So I still think there's um, characteristics among different nations of how they play, uh, even if it's not as severe as it used to be. And there's a lot more uniformity. Um, and again, it's, I'm not, it's, there's cliches in that, but I have found that when I've played in mixed teams, when I mean mixed nationalities, it is a stereotype, but I, I tend to find that my Irish teammates and Scottish teammates are a bit more, and French teammates are a bit more psyched up before a game most of my English teammates, you know, and it, it's a massive stereotype, but it's a stereotype for a reason, you know, and, and plenty of Lions coaches have said, um, you know, they had, I can't remember which uh, English coach it was now, but, you know, before a game, they were having to talk down the Celtic Celt players and try and jack up the English players, you know. So these stereotypes are there for a reason, even if they're not, you know, perhaps as obvious as they used to be. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And um, we had a look, uh, we, touched there on uh, a couple of questions ago about kind of the, the star players in 1905 and, and those players who who kind of stood out and were, and were fascinating but um, as I said earlier you've got a fantastic other book called An Illustrated History of Welsh Rugby now when you were when you're researching and going through that were there any um, any kind of players that you really enjoyed their their backstory or any of the kind of cult heroes or what who did you most enjoy writing about when um, when pulling that book together? I think, uh, and funnily enough, one of the ones I like is also in the 1905 team, but there's a player called Dickie Owen, a little scrum half. And I mean little, even by Welsh standards. You know, this guy, uh, he, apparently, you know, he, and sadly, they think it probably contributed to his death later on, but he was a kind of guy that would get knocked out in games. In this New Zealand game, he broke his ribs, he got knocked out, and there was no replacements allowed back then, you know, so he would just keep playing on. But people like him who had that real, again, we're going back to stereotypes now, but getting by on his wit and bravery and and and, and charm, if you like. Um, play, players like that. And then um, I just loved reading about um, people like, again, they're more well-known, but people like Cliff Morgan, you just kind of read about their backstories and where they came from. And, and I just think what I wanted to do with that illustrated history is to put more of a focus on the players. Although we give equal time chapter-wise to each era, a bit more of focus on the players from pre-television era because obviously mm. the 70s players were very lucky that we had colour TV come along um, and kind of immortalised what you say. But the, the history history is full of these uh, amazing players and tough guys. And and then the other one, I mean, he's, he's very famous for anyone who's read rugby, but is Arthur Monkey Gold, who was uh, the Newport Centre and fullback, who was rugby's first superstar. And if and you'll get if this one if you want to pick this book up, he, there's quite a bit on him. But he actually got Wales banished from international rugby because uh, people's love for him was so great that when that the people of Wales got together uh, with the Welsh Rugby Union and other organisations and bought him the deeds to a house as a thank you for everything he'd done for Wales, and the Scottish and Irish unions um, were very upset because it contravened all sorts of rules. And Wales were actually banished from international fixtures, and he had to retire before um, Wales could play fixtures again, you know. So these, these kind of stories uh, are just fantastic to read uh, and to learn about the controversies of the day. And, and then the other thing I think is when you dive into history is it's very different, but it's also exactly the same. You know, the pressures are pretty similar. The um, 
obstacles the players have to overcome and and the, you read the post-match reports and they could almost have been written of the language is a bit more florid but they almost could have been written you know a month ago so um yeah there's there's all sorts of ones but people like arthur gold was a particular favorite and anyone who uh knows of him will understand why i enjoyed reading about him so much the the bit that i uh, really enjoyed and i've mentioned this to you a couple of times but i had to jump to the middle pages to uh, to look at the history of the kits yeah. And normally, I if there's if there's photos in the middle of a book, I'll try and like, uh, I'll try and like almost you know like ration it and wait to wait to have a break in the middle of the book to read it. But I was like, right, I'm jumping straight to this because <laughs> I don't know what it is, but there is something about stylized stylized kits on a page that just appeals to the to the inner nerd in me. And obviously, rugby yeah. is very different to football because largely the kit remained identical for yeah. for the you know for the best part of um for the best part of the the history but century um, plus yeah yeah but that um but that that just really uh, appealed to me because there are certain memories that are evoked by by certain kits you you see it and instantly yeah. you know that um that grotesque yellow number that we wore in 2008 <laughs> takes me you know takes me back to yeah. to a certain you know to laboring past whoever it was Samoa on a on a Friday night and yeah. it, it's just funny the way you see these things and it instantly trans you know transports you back to a moment in time yeah and so that was one of the most difficult it was one of the things I did last and I got a great artist called Anne Cake Bread to do it but it was actually an absolute nightmare to do because as you're right for the first until 19 92 effectively the kit didn't really change we've reflected the little changes but it was mm. essentially the same kit and then obviously commercialization comes in and you are getting kits every every few years but i'd found i'd come across as a kid a photo of wales played in the 70s with an umbral logo on the outside of the shirt now i knew umbral made the kit in that era but and i it took me ages to find it um and it, it turned out for some reason against australia in 1975 we had a tiny umbral logo on the on the shirt itself for that one game so i was trying to take it to that level of detail you know in the 1991 world cup there were as an umbral logo on the short and i wanted to get to that level and then the, it got really tricky with the the first ever real kit changes when we had the green collars and the dragon logo dragon's logo on the on the shirt and we had a green kit that also had the dragon logo on the shirt and i put it in there and i realized just before we went to publication that the green shirt, the dragon, was only on the replica shirt and it was never actually on the shirt they wore on the pitch. Uh, and I just caught it. And it caught 99.99% of people would never have noticed, complained or no, but I, I, I knew, I wanted it to be that accurate, you know? So I actually had a couple of, a nightmare just after we went to print. I woke up at four o'clock in the morning. I'd been dreaming that I'd missed out a shirt that we'd worn in this special game and it was too late to fix it. And I woke up and I don't know if you've ever had a nightmare. And for the first few minutes, you don't realize it was a dream. And I was like, Oh my God, I've, you know, ruined the middle of the book. And it turned out that I just dreamt it all, you know? Um, but the funniest one is, it's funny you mentioned the yellow kit. Cause I don't know if you know the story about me and the WIU and that yellow kit for the East Terrace. Uh, go, yeah, so go, go ahead for the audience. <laughs> so I, I, I'm the founder and edge of the East Terrace, and we used to have used to be a satirical website about rugby. We've changed tack now, but when the yellow kit came out, um, I always laugh at the press releases that come with these kits. I know they've got. I've worked in PR. I know you've got to hype it, but instead of just saying here's a new kit, they always give it a backstory, and they came up with a thing a thing about St David's Gold and all this. But basically, it was a yellow kit, and SA Gold was the sponsor, so it was quite clear why they were doing it. So we did a the, so the East Terrace did satirical articles, but we wrote them perfectly straight as if they were like a real report. And uh, it was syndicated on scrum.com. And we said that the shirt was a tribute to the canaries from the coal mines that had laid down their lives for, for you know, for, for the Welsh industry. And we said that they used actual canary feathers to get the color, right? So we put it on scrum.com because they were syndicating us. And within a few hours, we had an email from the WIU saying, we, we need you to tell people this is not true. We need a disclaimer on there. And, and scrum.com got quite nervous. And I said, look, guys, this is perfectly fine under kind of satire laws. It's not a problem. But we actually decided to add it to the front of the article. So the article actually carried disclaimer. The WIU have asked us to make clear that no canaries were killed in the process of making this Welsh shit. You know? So it was absolutely fantastic because the story completely took off even more then because... Um, that WIU had decided to comment on it. <laughs> Which is amazing as well, isn't it? And like you say, if you've ever worked in PR, like the the kind of hoops and the sensitivities you have to jump through when actually everyone knows, especially when you're trying to flog something, yeah. the more that that story could have spread and people yeah. believed it, the better it, the better it would have been for, uh, for say, even for, for a exactly. kid as horrible as that. Exactly. And it was a shame it was just pre-Twitter era because I think uh, 
if it had been in the Twitter, it would have been absolutely fantastic because it really would have taken off. But yeah, it was just really funny and an example of, yeah, I, I can imagine how the PR team were panicking, to be fair, if I was on their side of the thing. But yeah, the, the kit, it's funny, you've enjoyed, you know, a lot of people have said to me about this, the book, that they've really enjoyed the the kit thing. Um, and the other funny thing is, is just how many kits there were you don't realise. And they've all been since the mid-90s. Yeah. And kits we wore for one game and kits, you know, um, but just a sheer vo- uh, amount of them. The green one from World Cup 2019 fascinates me because it came with a big fanfare. And actually, I, I again, just gauging um, public opinion by spending too much time on Twitter, yeah. it seemed like that was a real hit, actually. Yeah. To my knowledge, they never, wore, never it. wore it. Yeah, never wore it. And, and what was really weird is in that time, I can't remember the world, because normally they wear that kit in a World Cup warm-up. Like, yeah, there's exactly. always one. It doesn't matter what. There's no, it's not about colour clash. They'll just wear it. Or, and, and they'll also wear it in a, a pool match at the World Cup. So I'd love to know why they broke commercial tradition, if you like, this being tradition, why they decided not to wear it at least twice. And as you said, I, I've never done a scientific poll, but I'm amazed at how many of those shirts I've seen. So for some reason, yeah. And obviously the World Cup one was even nicer because the World Cup's the only time there's no sponsor on the shirt anymore. So it's always nice to have a nice shirt for the World Cup because... You know, it's a clean shirt. So, yeah, it's really bizarre. So I put it in the book for completeness sake. But I actually, uh, yeah, I put a note next to it saying change kit uh, never worn. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating one. Well, it's, it's fascinating for, for kit nerds. Uh, <laughs> yeah, as, for uh, some so, of us. Most people don't For care. some of us. But, um, but, yeah, I think that's what I really enjoyed about the book as well, is there is just all of these these wonderful stories and anomalies that... Um, that you can uh, that you can take out of it, and it's just a yeah, a really uh, a really good fun read. It does sound um, though, James, that we'll have to do another one of these that talks about why the rivalry between Ireland and Scotland isn't as intense as uh, as it as it is with, between like, England and yeah that we have with England and New Zealand. It's it's really funny, and I, I lived in Dublin, so I, I very good nature. But uh, there's always this assumption that you know the, the, this Celtic brotherhood. But when you look back at the history, it just it really isn't the case. Um, and like I say, it, without going too much into the whole class fish thing, Scottish rugby, the Scottish rugby union in particular, have always been the most conservative of the, of the unions. Um, you know, they were the last ones to put numbers on the shirt. There's a famous story when the King Edward, somebody was um, at a game in the 1920s and he asked why the Scottish players didn't have shirts, uh, numbers on their shirt. And he was told, you know, they're not cattle, sir. You know, they're men or something. And there's stories of um, the, the, the most horrific one that actually makes my blood boil was... In the Second World War, you had the wartime internationals where players would play together often when they were back from army duty or and they allowed uh, rugby league players to play with rugby union players during the Second World War. Because when the whole world's dying and getting butchered, it doesn't really matter if um, a rugby league guy has a game of rugby with a rugby union guy and the Scottish rugby union refused to sanction it. So even... Uh, and there was a, a fantastic letter from a general uh, to the Telegraph, I think, saying you know, it's OK for these guys to come halfway around the world and die for us. But they can't. The Scottish Rugby Union is not going to allow them to play a game of rugby with someone, you know, that level of conservatism. So when you go back to the late 19th, 20th century, early 20th century, again, going back, Wales had a lot of the working class players. Um, there was a real uh, and then Wales there was more money there was boot money definitely in wales that there wouldn't have been in scotland so there was an element of wales which were breaking the rules which we were and and also you know there's even stories about you know the food they were put on for england and ireland would be like the champagne and then for the welsh rugby union it would be beer you know and things like that like real um uh kind of like snobbery even on the food and drinks front so it's a fascinating history to me if you if you showed this book to a neutral uh or a history often to a neutral Mm. who didn't know anything about the other rivalries you'd think that yeah scotland or ireland would be the ones you want to beat but obviously it's far more complicated than that and it comes back to uh, what happen- happens outside of rugby organizations so it's, it's it is fascinating to go back and look at these early days and see the relationships between countries and let's just finish by uh, by talking about new zealand because obviously mm-hmm. we've, uh, we've we've got that game around the corner um should wales pull off a victory you know despite having various um yeah, various. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Absentees and yeah. res- restraints on their squads. Would this, you know, would this mean um, as much having gone, having gone such a long time? You know, what do you think it would it would mean to Wales and the Welsh rugby fans if if this were to happen? It, it'd be it'd be a really funny one because for, if you 
from a non-Welsh point of view, people would say, well, it's an autumn international. It doesn't count for World Cup because that's the way people think now, rightly or wrongly. And you've lost the last 70 years worth and have lost, you know. But I think on a personal level, I think most Welsh fans would... Uh, there's two things I want to see Wales do before I die. I'd love to see us win a World Cup and I'd love mm. to see us beat New Zealand. And those two things don't necessarily go together. You know, we, we could have won a World Cup without beating New Zealand. Um, but the fact that I even have to think about which one I prefer... It says everything. I mean, I, I would prefer to win a World Cup, but the fact that I would even consider it, um, like I say, 1953, we last beat them. So there's not really, there can't be many people left with a memory of it. Uh, and if they have a memory of it, it was probably quite vague, you know, because it's so long ago. So I think it would just be, it would be huge. Uh, just because I think every Welsh fan can, can see how they might never see it because we've just grown you know we've just been conditioned to it and uh i think it would be great and i think it would be great for the sport to give something back to that rivalry as well um and that was why it was so great heartbreaking like 2005 in particular i really thought i was i was going to ask you which which ones kind of spring to mind as the ones that um yeah those kind of near misses if you like that because because they're the closest things we've we've had to a victory aren't they they're the clean things you've got to to cling on to and i think as well like yeah 2005 was in my lifetime, the one time I, I thought we might do it with five minutes ago. I've never, ever really felt that even that great game in 2003 when we went out with a second string team and, yeah. you know, we were leading 37 points after 60 odd minutes, but you knew you knew it was going to come. You could feel it. But I think 2005, it really felt like, um, or 2004, sorry, it really felt like we were going to do that. But the, the, the other thing I think gets forgotten when you talk about the, without disparaging it but the great team of the 70s is we lost in New Zealand in 69 away uh 72 78 obviously the famous Andy Hayden but we, we still lost and then we lost in 1980 so that was four times in just over a decade and there's another game which I mentioned in the illustrated history that I think it was 75 where we played them in a non this is how different we talk about too many <laughs> test matches they were visiting Ireland to play a centenary match with Ireland because it was Ireland's centenary. And on the way back on a Wednesday, they played Wales in a full house at Cardiff Arms Park. But because it was the Irish Rugby Union centenary, the IRB didn't want to cloud the celebrations and take the shine off it. So they refused to sanction caps. So you had a full Welsh team of the 70s against a full New Zealand team in a full Cardiff Arms Park, and there were no caps awarded. But that game's kind of gone, but we lost as well then, yeah? So in a way, that team of the 70s had three or four shots at them and, and still lost you know so often as great as that Welsh team was they had enough cracks at home against New Zealand and yes you can talk about the line out one and the disallowed try in 72 but it's a team they couldn't beat and I think if a Welsh team beats them even if they were weaker it would just be a huge monkey off the back uh, it's, it's amazing isn't it and this is a bit of a recurring theme of the chat that we've had that you know, the kind of the myth and the way that memories are preserved. And you kind yeah. of think, well, what would have happened if that 70s side had been around in the, you know, in the in the Twitter era? You know, there would have been people pointing. There'd have been yeah. freeze, fra- freeze frames of what was going on at the line out, loads of different interpretations yeah. of it. Um, yeah. You know, you'd have people pulling out stats about, uh, you know, I don't know, about John <laughs> Dawes missing three tackles or whatever. Yeah. And, um, and you just, in a way, I, I kind of, um, I've kind of looked at... Um, in the last year anyway, I've just tried to limit a bit of social media use yeah. during the game because it's like, do you know what? Try and recapture that that um, that fun that you had with it as a kid and that pure joy yeah. without arguing uh, <laughs> arguing with strangers. I think as well, like, it's taken a huge shine off the line. I mean, there's other issues with the Lions, with the modern era of how you can fit it in. But if I'm honest, like the... So, and I'm, you know, I'm a big social media user, but Twitter especially is really taking the shine off the lions to me in a, in a big way um in the sense of the way people moan about national representations and all that because i've always been one of these people you know when wales so when the lions went to australia under graham henry the only welsh players i thought should be in that team in the test team were mm. quinnell and howley and i was fine with that and then they obviously both got injured and if those last few tests had had no welsh players it would have been a shame but it wouldn't have I wouldn't have been on too angry about it because that, to me, the Lions should be the best of those four nations. But one of the things, and I know you shouldn't let Twitter get you down that, but just the amount of abuse about who's picked and what nationality, and this whole nonsense about, you know, the Gatland, the worst example was the Gatland O'Driscoll thing, you know. There were people out there who were making out that he dropped, he'd had this like 10-year plan to get revenge on the Irish by dropping 
O'Driscoll in the third test and picking him in every other. It was just bizarre. But the level of um, anger and abuse. The vitriol, and that, yeah. Vitriol, yeah. And it's kind of taken a shame. So I'm kind of like you. Sometimes I just try and leave the phone alone on an international weekend because, as you said, yeah, it just gets overanalyzed, doesn't it? To a, it it a nice is, and it's annoying and... because there's there's pockets of, of brilliance and people who share that same enthusiasm at you. And mm. I just kind of think like, I can't remember who used the analogy, but like, you know, if Twitter was a pub, you'd walk past it. Whereas actually, you know, if, <laughs> yeah. if you do venture in, there's some, you know, there and there are some some of the listeners to this podcast that are just fantastic to chat yeah. to on. So because they can be, be objective about it and, and say, do you know what? I know I'm a, you know, I, I know I'm a Wales fan or I know I'm a Dragons fan or whatever. But leaving yeah. that at the door, so and so had a great game or, yeah. you know, and I think that's just that's kind of like that was always one of the good things about rugby. And I think for me, because again, I don't have as much time to watch domestic Welsh rugby as I used to, and I live abroad where it's hard to get it sometimes. Um, there are again, there's certain people who I will go to for match reports or match analysis, if you like, of say Cardiff games that I, you just don't get in the match reports that are mm. in the BBC or whatever. So there, yeah, there's definitely these pockets of people who are really, even though they're fans, they're really well informed. And so yeah, there's a nice. There is lovely groups, and that's why I stay on Twitter. There are some lovely mm. groups, and some of them as well have been so supportive of the books and or also have, have helped me with research. You know, you sometimes when I'm writing the book, you put an appeal out, you know, has anyone got a copy of this old programme or has anyone know anything about this old player? And you'd be amazed. It's lovely what people, the lengths other people will go to to help you trace down some obscure fact that... 99 percent of people don't care about <laughs> yeah there's are some of the best chats we've had again i don't remember someone circulating a photo uh, you know a few a few months ago of um of either a gwent or a monmouth team um and it was then playing in like a teal blue and i was like that's amazing where's that come from and then someone said well that's that's monmouth blue or whatever it is yeah. and and I was like, I always thought that was like the darker one. Um, and yeah, and then all these photos surfaced of various different shades of blue over the years. And it was just brilliant. Again, you know, obviously it, it appealed to my kit nerdery in me. But um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it, it's just like, you know, I love those things because it is those those shared memories of um, of rugby that, that, that people have and, and the, everything that's good about it. And, and, and the last thing, you know, uh, the, on the going back to the kit thing in the book, the amount of tweets I got about that middle section of the book was fantastic to me because before Twitter, you know, I, I was working on that book till three, four in the morning every night, for months, you know, like, you know, barely sleeping because of it. And, you know, years ago, you would have put the book out there and unless somebody wrote you a letter, which was unlikely, you would never have heard about it. But what was lovely, and you were one of them, was seeing people tweet about the book and then focusing on something like the shirts. And it just felt great to see that feedback that you wouldn't have had in a pre-Twitter world. So that, you know, that was one of the, one of the lovely things about Twitter is seeing it was people who take the time to respond to something you've done in a book. And you realize that you, you were right to spend all those evenings do it because somebody somewhere enjoyed it and got something out of it. Definitely. And uh, as I say, I, I think uh, there'll be a large chunk of our audience who would enjoy both the books. So I'd thoroughly recommend you to, uh, to go and uh, have a look at an illustrated history of Welsh rugby and indeed uh, how Wales beat the mighty All Blacks. Uh, James, it's been fantastic to chat to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, and yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll get you on again soon. Yeah, thank you very much. And if we do beat New Zealand on the weekend, I think it must be me on this podcast. So definitely have you back next week if that's the case. That's it. We'll have you back every week. <laughs> cool. Thanks, James. Thank you very much. Thank you. Delighted to say I'm joined now by uh, by Paul Baines, a good friend of the show. We've spoken to a number of times over the years. Uh, I say, I guess, our, our resident New Zealand rugby expert, uh, living out there in New Zealand, keeping an eye on all things, all blacks and beyond. Uh, how are you doing, Paul? Yeah, good, thank you. Um, obviously been a bit of a disrupted year, not got around as many rugby games as I've wanted to, but uh, yeah, doing well, doing well. And yeah, you, obviously you, you mentioned there you've, you've had... Um, You've had lockdown kind of inter, uh, interrupt that that opportunity. Um, I, I guess we're we're lucky that we've got um, that we've got international rugby coming up this uh, this autumn with with crowds featured, which is just uh, is a very exciting prospect. Having other Six Nations behind closed doors. That said, it's a very tough opening assignment uh, for Wales uh, with New Zealand first up and without a, a host of players uh, due to due to injury and due to uh, the game being played outside the international window is there is, is there any feeling in New Zealand that, that this is a that this is going to be a tricky assignment for the All Blacks or is this is very is this very much expected to be a a, a win for the uh, for the for the Kiwis uh, I 
think it's safe to say that it's very much expected to be a win for the Kiwis. Uh, and the question marks as to is there any point to this game with Wales not having access to all their players? Um, so what's the point kind of thing? So, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, any discussion around uh, – there isn't even the thought that, uh, that the All Blacks won't win this game, um, to be honest. And obviously they're in a they're in a fantastic fantastic vein of form as well. I think you know perhaps take the the USA result with a with a pinch of salt, but another rugby championship title. Uh, what's the, what's the feeling amongst um, amongst the press and amongst uh, All Blacks fans with regards to to how Ian Foster is, is getting on in that um, you know a couple of years into his tenure now? Well, last year with those, I mean, losing to the losing to um, Argentina for the first time ever, drawing with both Argentina and. Uh, uh, the Wallabies think it was. Uh, look, there's a lot of people out saying basically he didn't deserve the role, has never achieved anything as a head coach. Uh, and they really just, and I mean, to be fair, he, hasn't, he hadn't been a head coach for 10 years. Um, mm. So it's been a decade since he's been a head coach at the Chiefs. Um, so uh, there were a lot of people out there sort of really gunning for him. There, a few of them have had to um, sheepishly back off a bit because he has um, basically gone through this season, up until that final game against uh, the uh, Springboks, in the rugby championship, he had an unbeaten record this year, uh, and so yeah, just that one game um, that they lost uh, there. So from that point of view, uh, and people had to sort of back off and uh, give him some respect, but still, uh, they'd, everyone would much rather, or a lot of people would much rather have raised Robinson, uh, Robinson, sorry, uh, mm. the Crusaders head coach as the uh, All Blacks head coach. Uh, so yeah, he's not some um, beloved here by any stretch of imagination, but there is. Uh, a certain amount of grudging respect coming his way now that we're seeing players like Kiriwani have come through uh, and uh, a few other um, players, um, such as Sonosoni Tokelaho, uh, who have got a handful of caps come through. And um, so, yeah, he's getting grudging respect rather than being, uh, rather than being loved. I was going to be my next question around around some of those key players. So obviously, we're used to looking at we're used to looking at New Zealand lineups from one to twenty three, full of uh, full of complete talent. Um, who are the who are the players who've kind of really stood out and impressed you this season? I some are saying Tokelaho as, as Hooker has come come in and done very well. He's at what well, he's at seven caps now, I think it is or something like that. So um, really, he's come come from relatively nowhere, uh, been a Super Rugby player. Um, someone that I've I've watched uh, through the uh, MPC, which is a level below that as well. Uh, but uh, but as far as Kiwis are concerned, yeah, he's he's kind of new. Um, the uh, we've got uh, uh, Topu Vaai is another player you'll see this this week this kind of weekend in the locks again. Um, has uh, less than ten caps uh, in in uh, to, to his name uh, and uh, sort of came through last year for the first time. So he's he's come through. Um, then we'll see, it, it's going to depend really because I mean, the, the centres at the moment is a very much a fluid space and we don't have a settled a settled center combination but um quintapire is another ki- another kid who's come through recently uh and uh, is doing well again only a handful of caps uh so far uh so there's a lot yeah there is a lot of young guys uh coming through and i think what sir kiwis refused to acknowledge is that um after 2015 and 2019 the number of hundred cap um all blacks that have retired uh, is is a lot, <laughs> basically. Um, and so we're probably running at the lowest average number of caps for an all-black squad or for an all-blacks team uh, for, for well over a decade. And do you think that this, you know, that the autumn is a, is a good time for, for New Zealand to to experiment a little, to boost those, to boost those cap numbers rather than maybe relying on some of the, the more experienced uh, players? Or do you think it's, it is all just about getting results first and foremost? Uh, well, there were the, the two games that are used to give caps, which is the USA and Italy. Um, Wales, Ireland and France should be first choice 15, first choice 23s and looking to get as big a win as possible. Uh, and uh, yeah, and those wins matter. These, these Those three games really, really do. Um, Ian Foss is not allowed to lose another game this, this year, mm. put bluntly. Um, he's lost the one he's allowed to lose and that's it. So he has to win those. Uh, he also has to start showing us that he knows what his first 15 is, because, put bluntly, um, we don't think he does. We've had seven um, scrum half, fly half combinations this year, um, which is unheard of uh, for the All Blacks. Um, So, well, we've had four different um, uh, scrum halves and three different fly halves this year. 
so that's uh, that that kind of level of chopping and changing and not knowing uh, who his um, who his best side is. Uh, and as you as, as you said on the show that we did, that you did for me, um, that uh, international rugby or coaching is about selection, uh, and he's yet to prove that. Whilst he's shown he can bring through young um, talented guys, he's yet to show us that he can actually settle on uh, set combinations and know what his best team is. And of those uh, of those fixtures that you mentioned, because I mean we we mentioned on the on the show I did for your channel that. This is the most amount of games that, that New Zealand have played, with the exception of, of two thousand and eight. So it's an incredibly busy, an incredibly busy schedule. Uh, obviously, looking to recoup as much uh, as much of those losses suffered during COVID as uh, as possible. But of those fixtures, I mean, sure, France is the one is the one that stands out. You know, they're they're a side very much in the ascendancy. Um, is there is it is there any? any any amongst, um, amongst New Zealand fans that, that, that Wales or Ireland might cause an upset? Um, not Wales, to be honest, because it's yep. outside the window and it's been since the 50s. Ireland, obviously, she, there's Chicago and Dublin, so there's a couple in the memory there um, around that one. Uh, so I think the, the casual fans will will walk into that one with, um, yeah, with, with those memories and think, oh, this is going to be a good game, uh, worth watching it. For the, the more experienced fans will look at it and go, geez. How old is Sexton now? I mean, come on. Um, and uh, and I think the, the the more sort of I guess the more hardcore fans will expect um, a comfortable dropping a comfortable win over over Ireland to be blunt. Um, but France is the interesting one. But we've got to also balance that against we've obviously beaten Australia a lot recently, and Australia beat France in their Test series in the summer. Now, was that all their available players? I don't know. Um, no, it wasn't. Um, but um, Will France have all their players available? Uh, will the clubs allow him to have all his players available for that game? Um, or, or, or again, will it be some sort of uh, hybrid team? I don't know. Um, but uh, that is, as you say, that that, that is the one that, that, that looks tasty. Um, there are too many uh, memories of quarterfinals and Wayne Barnes um, against against what against France that's still fresh in the memory <laughs> over here in New Zealand. So. Uh, that they, they will be more. That's again they'll be they'll be worried about. Um, but again, I guess the more um, the more hardcore friends will go. Hang on a second, but yeah, France lost the Wallabies. We thumped the Wallabies, so we should win that one as well. It's amazing how uh, time doesn't seem to uh, doesn't doesn't seem to heal that particular wound, doesn't it? It was two thousand and seven that, uh, that 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 World Cup quarterfinal, and so much so much has happened since. But. Uh, you're right. It, it it does always crop up whenever you see France versus New Zealand on the fixture list. That 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 game in particular just does uh, does spring to mind. Uh, just to bring it back to the Wales game, though, are there any um, any of that of that Wales starting lineup that uh, that rugby fans in New Zealand are you know are particularly wary of, or anyone that you think that they um, you know are, are looking forward to seeing in the in the Wales uh, in the Wales squad? Well, look, I mean, um, obviously, Alwyn Jones is. Is Colossus, um, uh, a, uh, and has been over here with and um, drawing a line series. Um, I mean, Liam Williams, when Wales toured over here, what was it now four years ago? Um, I think it was or 16, actually, no, think, six yeah. years ago. Um, he, um, he he definitely caught the eye, so people will be um, will be thinking about him. Uh, you've got your your um, your three Kiwis that um, that whilst uh, Kiwi fans will be happy to look at, they won't be scared of. Mm. of by 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 any stretch, but um, so I think from those, those point of views, uh, and Josh Adams also. I mean, he's a try scoring machine, isn't he? Uh, I, was he the highest try scorer at the Rugby World Cup? If not, he was close there or thereabouts, wasn't he? So he's going to be someone they're interested in as well. So um, those, I think those would be the ones because I'm, I mean, I'll be honest, I'm not sure um, what loose forward uh, combination you're going to put together. Um, to be honest, it's uh, there's 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 um, there's a whole bunch of options there, uh, and I think uh, quite a few of the names that we've used to seeing on uh, from that Lions tours um, aren't available. So, um, uh, so it's, it's the, so I think from the forwards, uh, Alvin Jones will be the one that stands out. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, he always stands out on on any uh, on any starting lineup and has done so. For the for the best part of those 150 appearances that um, that he's that he's made so far. So yeah, I think. Um, you know, obviously, for, from a Wales perspective, having that that kind of um, talismanic figure in the in the side always, I think, will always give confidence. But it is, there's a lot of uh, a lot of new younger players around him that um, 
that are exciting, but we'll we'll kind of uh, come into a a very very different atmosphere and a very different level of uh, a very different level of rugby when they when they face New Zealand uh, on Saturday. Um, going to trouble you for a prediction, Paul. They're notoriously uh, notoriously futile things to do because uh, they're they're often quick forgotten and, and hard to do. This does feel like more one of the more straightforward uh, straightforward ones. How do you see the how do you see the result panning out on uh, on Saturday? Um, well, look, one one of the issues that the All Blacks will have is that, that they've, they've obviously played the USA this weekend, having to fly across the channel. So it's not going to they have a bit of an interrupted um, preparation. I'm expecting anything up to 17 changes from the 23 that played Wales, that played the USA. Um, essentially, uh, we've got players like Dane Coles, um, Sam Whitelock, Richie Mwanga, um, and I'm trying to think who the other one was that's come back. Um, uh, that's uh, the base. Oh, and Sam Kane mm. that have all come back from either injury or paternity leave uh, back into the squad. So I haven't had much rugby recently. Um, you add uh, two more players in there in um, basically Damon McKenzie and Bowden Barrett, but the rest of that team, I think, they um, could could all be changed. Um, apart from apart from those six, so uh, the, it, we, we could have a bit of a, a slightly rusty start because of that. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm expecting a comfortable All Blacks win somewhere in the sort of 21 point region. I guess. Fair enough. Yeah, I went for I went for 23 points to the All Blacks on uh, on our uh, on our podcast on the weekend. So uh, yeah, it sounds like sounds like we're kind of on the uh, on the same page. Uh, before we go though, of course, um, yeah, we've uh, we've. As I say, we've spoken a number of times. I think we first spoke around the, the 2017 Lions tour. Um, but for anyone who hasn't uh, checked out your stuff, uh, tell our audience where uh, where you can find uh, where you can find uh, more of your content. Well, I went through a bit of a rebrand last year, so it's now New Zealand Sport Radio. Um, but you might have uh, sort of known me as uh, I was driving more as per the bucket hat. So driving more is kind of the the rugby brand for New Zealand Sport Radio, as we do a bit of rugby league stuff, uh, and we've had done things like jet sprint boating and all sorts of other stuff um, as, as well available on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and as a podcast. So that's pretty much, yeah, that's it. Good stuff. And we'll make sure we, uh, we, we tweet out, uh, we tweet out your handle as well. So uh, anyone who wants to keep their eye on, uh, keep their eye on rugby in New Zealand and, uh, and, and keep up with the excellent content can do so. Uh, thanks very much for joining us, Paul. Enjoy the game. And uh, no doubt we'll, uh, we'll catch up very, very soon. Thank you very much. Cheers. Podcast Network.